Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. This week, I'm joined by artist Tim A. Shaw, co-founder of arts and mental health charity Hospital Rooms and social enterprise Making Time Arts that deliver arts training to dementia caregivers. Tim's creative vision has transformed lives and he recently raised nearly half a million for his charity through collaboration with mega contemporary art gallery House and Worth. Discover how he balances purpose with painting, family and listen to the end to hear his great advice for you and his younger self. Good morning, Tim. Thank you so much for joining us on the Extraordinary Creatives podcast. I'm so excited to have you here, especially because you've just come off the back of an amazing project. So would you do us the honour of introducing yourself and who you are, what you do, and tell us a bit about what you've just been up to? Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I'm uh, I'm an artist and I've been an artist for about uh, 17, 18 years since I graduated from art school. And I also run an arts and mental health charity called Hospital Rooms. And we commission extraordinary artists to transform inpatient mental health units around the country. We lead lots of workshops and we run a digital art school on top of that. But just over the last month, we had an exhibition at House Runworth in London, and it tells tells people about what we do, opens up the conversations about how art can be useful in these kind of settings. And then on top of that, we had an exhibition at Bonhams down the road, also in Mayfair, and we raised lots of money for our upcoming projects. Amazing. And dare I ask, how much money did you manage to raise so far? We raised £430,000 so far. So that through an auction that happened last week. And yeah, it's a nerve wracking thing to go through, but we're just delighted that it went so well. It's amazing. Congratulations. And you involved lots of incredible artists, like you say. And uh, I'm curious, as an artist, how do you go about selecting those artists that you want to work with for a project like that? Well, so our projects, it's it's changed quite a lot because to start with, it was just Neve and I for the first three years. So we were making those decisions. We spend a lot of time in the inpatient wards that we were working in, and it would help us to decide who we might want to work with. But now we've got a whole big team of people, including a lot of project curators. So they make those decisions. And we have quite a long run up to before we even ask the artists to work on a project. And that involves lots of co-production, but it also involves bringing staff together with the artists, getting artists to visit the units, our team doing lots of workshops. And then we think about how we can work with that community and what artists might want to collaborate with them. And also just make sure we've got a really diverse range of voices and attitudes to making. And um, yeah, well, you know, the, the last project we did had 20 artists on it. So we had a, you know, it was, it was a sort of really varied, interesting group of people. And we evolve every time. So there's no real formula to it. But we, you know, we um, we get better and better at how we work with the artists. So having such an extensive experience of these publishing moments in hospitals now, 
What would you say are the factors that you look for in an artist uh, to deliver projects in those contexts? Well, it's a really difficult one to define what quality is, but it, it's really important that they they make really interesting, stimulating, thought-provoking work. It's also important that the artist wants to take part in a problem-solving exercise. Mm. They're really difficult spaces to work in. There's a lot of restrictions, but we need artists who have the, the vision, the frame of reference, the creativity to not see them as problems, but something quite exciting and quite a big, you know, exciting challenge mm. to figure out how we make something no less as good a quality as they do in a museum, but it just so happens to be in an inpatient mental health ward where you're not allowed a ligature point or frames or canvases or you know, your work has to be scrubbable. You know, that's not something that artists usually have to think about. Mm. And what kind of challenges have you learned come up for artists in those contexts? It doesn't happen too often, but I think sometimes it is quite difficult to change a medium. You know, it's very difficult to work, for instance, with oil paint. You know, if you're an oil, or you're an artist who works in oil paint and has done for 20 years, it could be quite difficult to say, actually, that's not going to work if you want to make a 20 meter mural. Um, so there are some some things we need to work through and troubleshoot with the artists. But generally, most people see it as a really exciting thing to do. A lot of artists actually end up saying, why haven't I used acrylic? You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, all these years, I could I could add that to my list of materials that I use. So I mean, we've a lot of the other challenges are just about working and doing workshops in spaces where outsiders usually aren't allowed in. And I think that's one of the really important things that we do. We don't swoop in at night and make an artwork. We're very present on a working ward for a number of months. And, you know, they, they could be quite loud spaces. They could be quite charged spaces. And, yeah. you know, some artists are used to working in a studio quietly. So... You know, it could be a challenge, but our team are really amazing at, you know, making the artists feel like they can be themselves and um, feel safe while also making their best work. How might they do that? It's it's different for every kind of ward. And I think it's, um, you know, they're, they're small, often quite horrible spaces. And one thing that we do is we prepare the space really well. So, you know, if the walls are cracked and... Um, you know, look like they're made of cottage cheese, then we we make them right so that someone I'm just using the example of uh, making a mural here, they could they could make a mural. We also always have our team with the artist at all times. So especially when leading workshops, we might have a couple of our team there leading the workshops with them. Um, if someone's painting on site, our team will be there to to assist in every way, also to speak to service users and staff if they're interested, because some artists need space to, to think and concentrate. Yes. And, um, and on the odd occasion, actually, it can be quite important for an artist to put on some noise cancelling headphones. And, uh, you know, we're, we're there just to support um, if anything were to happen. And those spaces, I think, for artists and creatives who, in my experience, have a real understanding that mental health is vital, certainly for what they do, and that everybody I know and work with, you know, would be empathetic to the challenges of navigating 
um, periods of time where we don't always suffer the best, you know, we suffer the um, challenges with our mental health. So I'm wondering about the emotional and psychological impacts of working on a site like that. How do you help the artist navigate the emotions that might come up for them in those contexts? Well, you know, I think most of us have, you know, been, um, I mean, we're talking about inpatient mental health as well. So generally people who are under section, but most people know someone who's been sectioned mm-hmm. um, and a lot, and that includes a lot of our artists and also a lot of our, some of our artists have been under section themselves. So mm-hmm. going into an inpatient ward that might be very similar to the one that they were in or they visited someone in can be very challenging and quite triggering. So mm-hmm. there needs to be a lot of conversations before we start a project. Um, there's obviously occasions where artists say, actually, do you know what? It's a bit too raw for me to take mm-hmm. part in this. But we also find a lot of artists who say, actually, I feel quite empowered. You know, someone who is on the other end of this, I feel like I could come in and do something about that and also bring a lot of um, sort of knowledge and experience to that. And, you know, for, uh, for one example, an artist whose um, parent was in that same hospital where they were doing a project could remember how horrible that family room was and the feeling of not wanting to go and not visiting as much as they as they wanted to and and then thinking actually the family room is a really important uh, space for me to tackle but really our our team are there to support the whole way through and we we know what to do if you know something becomes too much we can always stop a workshop if we need to or or in a really sort of gentle way or we can leave the site if it becomes too difficult And it's something that doesn't happen very often. You know, I think once once we get into it, it's, you know, it's a really rewarding thing to do. Mm. And I think a, a, a number of artists have said working with us on a hospital rooms project is the most challenging project they've done, but perhaps the most rewarding. So there's something in that. Yeah, it's an amazing context that you've created of safety and psychological safety for artists to do their best work, but also for people to receive and experience that work in such an unusual context. It's a challenging project that you run and lead an organisation. What was the original motivation for it? It started because uh, a best friend of mine and a best friend of Neve and mine um, was sectioned after a suicide attempt. And it was actually the first day visiting uh, visiting them in an inpatient ward. Uh, it was well, it was a massive shock as to quite how how horrible it was and how dehumanizing it felt for someone who hadn't done anything wrong. Not that that should really actually um, matter, but they hadn't done anything wrong and they were being punished for it. And I guess if we did something else, we might we might have thought of something else. But because we, you know, we're an artist and a curator, we just wanted to have a go at doing a project where we could bring some change to a single ward and see what happened. Mm-hmm. And we thought we'd be welcomed with open arms very naively. And actually we weren't you know, they're very risk averse spaces and actually understandably so, you know, people who work in these these places um, 
work very hard and they have a hard job and having a load of uh, artists coming in and wanting to do workshops and paint walls and and bring in materials that usually wouldn't be allowed in these spaces is understandably something that wasn't necessarily seen as um an easy thing to do but eventually we did actually convince one hospital to let us do a project and that was springfield hospital in southwest london and it kind of went from there that was our first project and neef and i worked on it for nine months with 11 artists wow. and it was it was amazing it was incredibly difficult and um but you know the best thing we'd ever done so we just carry um, on what would you say tim was the key in to working with that hospital we we got turned away by many hospitals as in dozens of hospitals many of which we've worked with now but one was one was just that you shouldn't be doing this you know you shouldn't bring outsiders into these spaces it's hard enough to bring a family member into a family room sometimes why would we let a group of people who aren't um clinicians or support workers are actually you know working on the ward in another is that you know where's the evidence for this and you know our feeling was where's the evidence that the way it is now is okay and you know i think really we were at a stage where we just needed to convince one person and um i i actually met someone in a pub who um was was a part of a trust who managed to you know i, t- I told him the idea and he managed to get us a meeting with the, med- the medical director at the time of springfield hospital of swstg and yeah, we had a half hour meeting and that turned into a two hour meeting and a visit to see a ward and then we got that ward and then we just had had start fundraising, basically. Amazing. So there was something in the pub meeting where we can assume that your enthusiasm or passion for your project was communicated with one person who understood your mission and your vision and who liked you, who connected mm. with you and who could see that you were coming from uh, a good place. And I think we're still at, we're still a bit, it's still a bit like that now. It's often a sort of one sort of sparky, interesting person in a, in a, in a ward is the one who says yes, or wants the project or, or in a hospital, you know, it could be a support worker or an OT or a, a psychiatrist or the CEO, you know, any one of those people might get in touch with us. And it's, it's still not necessarily down to data or evidence. It's, it's about seeing with their own eyes, the difference that it could make to mm. you know, transform these spaces and give opportunities for creative activities. And I think if we're going to make a bigger change, we we also need to have um, the evidence that could be you can back it up. You know, especially if it's going to be other organisations starting or um, doing similar things to what we do in these kind of places. Mm. Um, and that's something we're working on too. What kind of evidence would you need to supply? Well, I think what people want is data. You know, we've got a lot of uh, qualitative um, evidence for what we do. We do have a peer-reviewed paper written about a project that was really good. The Lancet's published a, a two-page piece on hospital rooms and one of our projects. But, you know, we've we've got a, a much more robust partnership with Norwich University of the Arts and then also... Mm-hmm. Um, with the WHO and NYU. And I think the work we'll be doing together with our research team um, 
you know, sort of detailing the things that the decision makers want to hear is what's going to make a big difference, I think. And we're still working on that now. It's interesting that so many institutions are made up of a mixture of individuals at the end of the day. Mm. And I think in the work that we do, whether it's in the arts, whether it's in, um, you know, mental health or whether it's in the corporate world, very often the routine is somebody connecting with a person and seeing the potential or the possibility. And the reason that I'm so delighted that you shared that, because as challenging as it might feel that it's that transference of enthusiasm and passion that ignited something in someone, I think I want most creatives to know that they have the potential to transfer their own enthusiasm for something to one person. And sometimes you have to knock on the doors of a hundred people to find that one person. And rather than that be um, an overwhelming or difficult thing, if we were to acknowledge and embrace that that is just human life, you know, that generally most humans are risk averse because that's how we're, we're born to be, to, to stick with the tribe, to stay safe. And, you know, that's just who we are. But occasionally there's somebody who's prepared to go outside the tribe, to seek out the next village, to go on an adventure and to see what's on the other side of the hill. And that actually our job as creatives is very often is to commit to finding that one person Mm. and that they are there. There is always somebody there who wants your work, who's prepared to go on that journey with you. But your bigger why has to be big enough. And it sounds like your bigger why, Tim, I mean, is extraordinary in knowing that there was something in a personal relationship that motivated you. But I'm also really interested in, um, you describe Neve as a curator and yourself as an artist. And obviously you're both spanning both of that in your creative endeavours at the moment. But up to that point, you've been a practicing artist. And what kind of work um, were you making then? And what kind of work are you making now? Uh, well, my my studio's got smaller and smaller the more hospital rooms has grown. So, you know, went from sharing a, a warehouse space with someone to a much smaller, more central uh, studio in Hoban to uh, a, a studio in my flat. And that's also since having a three-year-old as well. So hospital rooms, COVID and a three-year-old's all uh, made working from home um, a necessity. But I mean, I I was an installation artist, so I used to recreate spaces. um, And, you know, that would include light sculpture, painting, all sorts of different things. And actually my work's become much more painting. And I think partly because I really enjoy it. And, And I enjoy the medium and I enjoy what it can feel like to paint. And also because of the space, that I have. So the work's much, much smaller, much more intimate and probably much more personal mm-hmm. and much more inward looking. And, and also probably much more about being a parent. Interesting. And more and more, um, a part of my work too. And I think, uh, sort of subconsciously work hospital rooms is kind of really infiltrated into the way I think. And, um, and work and the the kind of work that I make. Could you say a bit more about that? 
I think, I think the work, well, the work we do in hospital rooms, we we feel like we have a responsibility for some of that work to be quite transformative, to really change the way you think and feel when you're in that space, which means that it's often not just a picture on the wall. So in some ways, I kind of slightly battle against that now, where I make quite small pieces that you hopefully um, get immersed in in a different way. And I guess very big work uh, immerses you and very small work you can get immersed in. So mm. I think maybe I maybe I find it quite comforting working on a very small scale at the moment. Mm. And I guess also I think about mental health and I think about things that are going on in the world and I think about social practice and I think about social justice a lot more than I did. And it just can't, it can't help but affect you, you know, but I think also feeling the privilege of being able to go home at the end of the day mm. has an effect too. So there's, I think I find quite a lot of joy in making and more than I ever did before. Yeah, that's wonderful. So something moving from this kind of epic installation scale, if you like, and as Hospital Rooms has grown as an organisation, you've moved to a smaller, more domestic, intimate scale um, in the work. So that necessity is the mother of invention, but also there's something in that joy that you speak of that I think is so important for um, propelling you forward as a creative. You know, you have to connect with your joy in the making and the process of making. But also it sounds like the meaning and the content that you're dealing with is coming out. And I wonder for those listeners who who will go and hopefully look at your work now, could you describe um, what we might see in some of your current paintings? Well, I, I guess I'm slightly unusual that I... I love working in oil and acrylic and watercolor and separately as well. So the oil paintings are really impasto, thick, quite heavily worked uh, portraits, basically, but they come up looking quite abstract, but they're quite carefully observed. And I quite like the fact that the amount of time it would take them to dry, you know, the way they oxidize, the way that they oil paint can kind of relate to the human body healing in that way. The acrylic paintings are often layered, collaged acrylic skins. So again, there's something quite sort of grotesque and bodily and flesh-like and these kind of layers of flesh that make up these people. And and then also I've started doing these acrylic layered canvases that are a weird hybrid of portraits and landscapes and putting people's faces into portraits and this kind of slightly lofty feeling of being a part of the world and the universe. And then the watercolors are, uh, well, they're kind of like explosions or the start of something. They're quite like cells. They're quite intricately worked. And I, I started those uh, during the first lockdown when my three-year-old, who's now three, when my son was born. And I think I was, you know, thinking about, um, yeah, new life and a new start. And they were they're sort of probably more attractive than, than I'm used to things than I'm used to making. But, um, but yeah, they're, they're all quite, they're quite sort of heavily worked. I think there's a lot of labor goes into it. Mm. And I think something about the fact that now I don't have time to sit and think about what I'm going to make because 
hospital rooms and the other things that we do, Neve and I do, take up so much of our time. You know, it's a couple of hours with our son in the morning. It's a long day. It's a couple of hours after uh, nursery. And then it's some more work and then it's painting sort of nine till midnight. So there's a, a very yeah. short window to make. So I think uh, somehow it's become that I I want to be able to sit down and start making work immediately. And, mm. and the works kind of help that. So there's something about that collapsing of time and the way you chunk down your working day is super impressive and uh, something that I talk to creative clients about all the time, you know, that it doesn't matter how squeezed you are. If you are an artist or you are a creative, then you have to factor it into your day because everything else comes from that. Mm. Now, I don't know if you find this, Tim, but being a good parent, a good partner, a good project manager, a good curator, a good leader comes from knowing what your creativity means to you. Mm. And so being able to move from this kind of intellectual place where let's say for, for people can't see me, um, I, I'm sort of putting my hands up by my head because I know very often as creators, we, we live up in our heads, don't we? And when we overthink sometimes, it can create a kind of blockage in our flow. And so it sounds like as you're talking, I'm getting this impression that because of the, the time frame that you've got, somehow you start and it comes more from the body. Does that resonate at all? Well, I, I think I find that with, and, and not just my work, but when we see other artists work, sometimes there's sometimes spending a year thinking about something doesn't result in something better that they've spent a day thinking about. Mm. And I find the same with myself. And also with, I don't know, if you're hanging a salon hang, sometimes there's, you know, if, if, if you've got experience doing that, you kind of have a bit of a gut feeling. I'm sure yeah. AI could probably take that and, you know, make something <laughs> quite good. But, you know, I, I think, yeah, so, some artists some artists need time to sit and think for days and not make a mark or make something. And I guess sometimes out of necessity, you, you have to just start making. And personally, I find it a lot more, a lot easier just to start making something. And if it goes wrong, that's fine. But I'm, you know, and also I guess I'm, Neve's, Neve's very, Neve's very a academically intelligent and has a brain that can, that works in a very different way to mine that I'm endlessly impressed by. And I'm not particularly academic or, and I'm, I'm certainly not intellectual either. And I, you know, I think like I work much better with, with just making and, and doing things and, mm. um, which actually Neve could do as well. But I, you know, I, I could just do that. But I think sometimes it's good to play to your strengths. I think that's absolutely right. I think there's uh, something I hear a lot from artists is this idea that, um, you know, that they, they like or are even in reverence to academics who can articulate things with language. But I think there is a different kind of knowing. And I think what you've shared with us is firstly, there is an incredible amount of uh, EQ, emotional intelligence in uh, making, being able to translate your response to a person to, in order to channel that, to create uh, something, an abstraction of that experience of that person in the work. There's also something about that kind of 
trusting your gut, as you said, that trusting yourself and allowing yourself to go through the process of learning and knowing and making. And through that process, something good will always come. So I'm curious as to where you are now, you know, what's had to take place, Tim, for you to become the artist and the the, the kind of CEO, if you like, of, of hospital ro- rooms? What kind of work have you had to do on yourself? That's a tricky question because I guess you don't really, it's, it's hard to piece all those things together. But I think really the, the good things that have happened, especially with hospital rooms, I think is down partly to luck and to other people putting a lot of work into this field and i think you know we i think we're quite unique in hospital rooms with what we do in inpatient settings anywhere really but there's people like melba wilson who for 30 40 years has been pioneering some of these ideas already and i think we we hit across some someone close to us said you've invented the paperclip you know it's not very intelligent but you actually did it and i think personally um i'm probably a workaholic and um and i think for my own mental health i have to be doing something all the time and i find that very helpful mm-hmm. and it, in the best possible way so i think Wanting to work all the time actually um, really helped with, say, getting hospital rooms off the ground. And it also helped just sort of constantly churning away with with making work as well and not wanting to stop. So I think that that has been a real help for me. And Neve also works incredibly hard. And so we kind of encourage each other in that way and are sort of just on the right side of healthy, I think. And yeah. How do you help yourself stay on the right side of healthy? Uh, I think for for me, having a three-year-old is really helpful. Mm. It breaks up the day. There's there's four hours a day, two in the morning and two in the evening, where we stop and we just have fun yeah. and, and eat, eat for two hours in the evening nonstop and, <laughs> and popcorn and, you know, do fun things. Mm. I think that's, that's for me, is, uh, you know, a real lifesaver, really. Mm. So um, fun and joy is something that you have almost scheduled into your day through family time, but also through making time, which is, it's amazing sometimes as creatives, because we like shiny new things and we like new territories, that actually it's the systems that we put in place that enable the biggest amount of growth and the consistency of scaling our practice. Mm -hmm. So it's really brilliant to hear hear you articulate that so beautifully. Um, Curious as to what you've discovered along the way that you're excited and surprised by in terms of what's possible through what you do. I think the the scale of what we do and, you know, I think, you know, Neve and I weren't, we've, we've managed teams before, but we don't see ourselves as people managers, but we've managed to put together an incredible team of people who work with us who will passionately believe in the mission and the vision of hospital rooms as a charity. And I think because of that, we're just surprised at how far things have come and how far, how much things have changed. And I guess that's all down to hopefully allowing 
people to feel it's okay to make mistakes and try and make your own unique mistakes and then learn from them and not to not worry if things aren't perfect as well. Yeah, I love that. What kind of mistakes have you made, Tim, that you've learned the most from? Well, I mean, so, I mean, so many mistakes. I guess when when we st- when we did our first project, we we thought we knew what co-production meant, and we we went in and we did meetings with people, and we did all these workshops at the end to sort of give context to the artworks. But you know, when you go in and do a meeting and ask people what you like, like a committee, you get a boring answer. Mm. And you know that mistake led us to switch around how we do workshops, and they 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 start they come at the beginning of the projects, and now they end up being something that happens all the way through. You know, just creative sessions constantly, mm. and that goes from working out who we're going to ask to be an artist, you know, and then for the artist to figure out how their work can be kind of useful, which is a weird thing to ask an artist to think about to also how we do our evaluation you know it doesn't have to be a necessarily a feedback form there's creative ways of doing that so that one mistake at the beginning kind of spawned lots of other good ideas Mm -hmm. and and then really actually it's lots of other people having good ideas that get added on top of that that makes everything so much better yeah could you give us an example of of how you facilitate those creative sessions now? Well, one thing that we do is, um, and this isn't something we invented. It's it's called a visual matrix workshop where you everyone sits facing in different directions. You use imagery and you you speak to the room. So rather than sort of sitting facing in and talking to each other you where where there's hierarchies you know a psychiatrist mm-hmm. might have a louder voice than a support worker if you're speaking to the room everyone feels so much more equal yeah and that was a really interesting thing to learn about um and it was a great it was a great idea that we borrowed but then we've brought that into other ways of you know talking to people talking to a lived experience group and you know doing it through collage or poetry or doing it working with artists and um it not just having to be about words because sometimes it's hard to find the right words and it could be about images or it could be about making something or making a noise and all those things can be really you know quite powerful ways of recording things Mm. and gathering data you know it doesn't have to all be done in one way and would you use similar techniques when you're gathering evaluation feedback Exactly. Yeah, we do it in a in a number of ways, and we still do use feedback forms. But even those feedback forms, we've kind of evolved over the years. You know, we've taken what they used to use from hospitals, which is one good way of doing things. It means you're not adding another feedback form. Mm-hmm. But also, we could do it in a much more fun way. You know, we could mm. it could be talking not, and and it could also be much more complex rather than saying, "Do you feel one terrible and ten brilliant?" You know. Do you feel tired at the end of this or while you're doing it? You know, do you mm. feel angry? And also angry might not necessarily be a bad thing. And also if you felt anxious and you feel sleepy, that might be something good as well. And, mm. and we can kind of talk about that and record that as well. So there's there's lots of interesting ways that we can make all mm. these things a bit more creative. What kind of tools have you 
employed in the business to systematize things so to enable you to have more creativity well i guess it's it's a balance because the, a lot of that's about making things more efficient and we we kind of, there's a lot of things we do want to make more efficient but there's also things that we want to give room to breathe and to keep inefficient <laughs> and um I mean, I mean, there's lots of things. I'm also talking about evaluation and research as someone who's not uh, necessarily a researcher. And we've got people who speak about it much better than me. Um, but we've uh, one thing that we've done in our team to make things more efficient is we had a lot of people who are all about project delivery. Mm. So we had a team just full of people delivering. And now we've got people who who um, who work with those people on the team and you know, it can kind of help them do their job, you know, if they're a curator, which is a lot about a lot of creativity, but also a lot of just organizing and yeah. dealing with people. We've got, we've now got people who support those people. So mm. they're, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're looking over specific things and it's, you know, it's something that all organizations do as they grow, but it's something that's really sort of pushed us along over the last year is just being able to, you know, bring in sort of bring in support for those people who are doing the, the creative things and um yeah just making their lives a bit easier the, the work that you do you know with hospital rooms is clearly so uh needed but also so rewarding i know it would be asking the impossible but i, I think it's my job to give it a go um could you think of a project or a particular um experience um, one publishing moment that has made an impact on you personally? I, I, I try and switch it up. There's one project we talk about called Hellingly Centre in a medium secure unit that was amazing. But there's another one that was that was challenging, but really brilliant. And it was at Bluebell Lodge. Sorry, sorry, Bluebird House. There's a lot of Bluebells and Bluebirds in the <laughs> <laughs> Bluebird House, which is a medium secure child and adolescent unit. So it's it's probably it's one of the two highest secure uh mental health units for young people. So it's it's very much behind a number of airlock doors. You leave your phone and keys and lockers on the way in. You know, they're they're, they're young people who often have been through the most difficult, awful things as well, some of those people. And society has really let them down and they've ended up in a place where they'd be spending a long time in this, this, um, this place, but they had an amazing team. And, you know, we, we did a project there where we led workshops, we sort of built trust, we built amazing relationships. And then the artworks really transformed these terrible spaces, but we ended up doing a, a final um sort of a performance piece in a gym where we'd made a kind of co-produced artwork with the young people and all their designs had gone into this kind of big uh sports hall you know because it's got like a school and everything in there you know because yeah. people are so long and we ended up having a kind of five-a-side football game that ended up being every all but one of the young people and all the staff that weren't didn't have to be on the security desk in there so it ended up being a sort of like a 15 a side game with some of our team and it was just absolutely wild 
um, and amazing and transformative. And for an hour, it didn't feel like being in a medium secure hospital. Yeah. And the art was a part of that and the process and the whole, and just getting to that point where there was a bit of a different culture Mm. and there could be more trust. And this is all through doing some art, you know, I think that that really was a wonderful moment for us. And it also made us think we want to do a lot more work with uh, CAMS, so child and adolescent mental health units. Mm. And the one annoying thing was that, you know, one of the best moments we've ever had was playing sport. And, uh, you know, know, so we we try and keep it about art, but it was, you know, you also realise play health sport could be an amazing thing too. Um, Yeah. So that that was a really that was a really wonderful project. It sounds like there's uh, the the things that go into art making and the nuanced processes that are involved. So the the motivation, you know, the the commitment to a process, establishing trust and connection, and getting up close and personal with people in a way where there's psychological safety. And the belief that in hope and possibility, you talked about it being transcendent. And I think that's, for me, that sounds like where you introduce the idea of hope. And that's whether it's through better relationships, better connections, but also the possibility that something might be different today, even Mm. if it's through a game of football. And I think that 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 is the power of creativity and art that you're introducing and it echoes you know there's echoes from that you know Mm. echoes within a day or a week also what what a space echoes back at you you know does it echo back depression does it echo back you are worth nothing or Mm. can it say you are worth something yeah and you know not everyone wants to be an artist and that's great because, you know, we should all, that's fine as well. But, you know, everyone can experience it and we should all have the right to experience it. And, you know, we should all have the right to be able to make something if we want to. And, you know, the, the we you know, the service users we work with, there's so many creative ways of thinking. And, yeah. you know, sometimes you sit down and there are artists there or there's people who want to be artists or people who want that opportunity. But we're in a very privileged position where we're an outside organization who could come in with a sole focus of doing art Mm. when the staff in that ward are just trying to keep, you know, they're just trying to keep it going, you know, keep people safe, keep people so that they're, you know, as well as they they can be at that moment. And, um, you know, we, we can come in and do that extra and the extra is the thing that makes it life worth living really. Yeah. That extra, I think, the um, that ignition moment, you know, that that we're all capable of something more, and those sort of moments of recognition that actually we can contribute something more, I think, is a really beautiful thing that we do. It's so inspiring to hear your commitment to the process and to learning and growing. And I'm thinking about all the people that want to be as brave as you and to to be a courageous artist. You might not see yourself that way, but I'm I'm curious to what kind of things have you had to personally overcome to to do what you do? 
it's, it's been a very difficult seven years, to be honest, since we started the charity. But it's been, but I wouldn't change any of it, really. You know, I think someone the other day asked if, you know, there's anything you wish you hadn't done. And I guess there's there's things that still make me cringe or make me think, you know, I said said the wrong thing or we made a big decision, a big wrong decision there. But the reality is it all helps, you know, those, those, all those things that went wrong and those things that you think, oh God, if I went back again, I wouldn't do that again, but you can't go back. So yeah, it's been, it, it's been a challenging few years, but it's also in a very cheesy way about not giving up. I think, mm. you know, that maybe the hardest part is just when you're trying to get it off the ground and people are saying no. And I think we just, and even I just from the first day said, we're going to do this project and whatever, if it takes us 10 years, we're just going to keep plugging away and we're going to make it happen. And, you know, that then, then, you know, as you grow, you get all the other challenges that come with that, you know, mm. fundraising, um, you know, making sure that you have a, team that's healthy and happy that you have a um you know that you do things safely still you know every night you still wake up thinking you know um you know what could go wrong but the reality is most of the most of the best things in life that are wonderful are really tough as well so you know we feel pretty lucky to be able to do that yeah it's 50 50 life hey but also, as you said, there's when you scale things and it's you've got a positive uh, mission, you know, it's another level, another devil, you know, as they say in, in business. And so, and interesting that you work with Neve, your partner, and obviously the um, the working relationship is one thing, and there's a personal relationship. How do you guys navigate any uh, differences of opinion of how to approach things? I, I mean, we know each other well enough that, you know, there's almost a kind of tele, a telepathy, a tele, how do you say it? Telepathy. Telepathy. <laughs> Where, which when there's two of you, it's really useful because you yeah. barely can say you're doing this and I'm doing this. But we do have to navigate the fact that, you know, when there's not two of us now, there's there's 20 people on the team and, you know, everyone needs to know what's going on and needs to know what we're thinking. Um, in a kind of more personal way, we, I think there is a sort of, there's a tiny bit of separation. I mean, I guess we talk about what we do and all the time, but also I don't see Neve as a colleague, you know, still, we still have a sort of romantic relationship mm. and, and that hasn't really changed at all. And, you know, I think that, you know, having a child and a partner is actually more important than anything else. You know, it's more important than yeah. hospital rooms to, to me. And, um, but I'm lucky that I don't need to make a choice between those things. So, you know, it, it all, it's all fine. And we have differences of opinion, but that's what makes it interesting. If we didn't, then you'd think there's something very wrong here because it's yes. become formulaic and we're not challenging, um, challenging ourselves enough. So we have a lot of small differences of opinion, but also know when to say, okay, let's try that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or I'll leave it. Don't worry. And yeah. Um, yeah. so you've created a, a safe framework for you both to, to test and try, but it sounds like you've also defined your roles a little bit um, within the organization. 
We have not really on paper, but we do know where our strengths lie, mm -hmm. and um, and it's yeah, it's useful to know that. It's useful to know where we have weaknesses and where we have strengths. Yeah. And, where know, would your Where would your strengths lie? Do you think? Um, I guess, I guess I am I. I really like working with artists. So does mm -hmm. Neve, but I also quite, I also know how an artist wants a work to come about. I think, yeah. you know, yeah. like I enjoy, really enjoy working with other people. Um, and, and we both, we both do, but then when it comes to things like fundraising, Neve is an incredible grant writer. Mm. She's incredibly clever at being able to, you know, um, put together an argument or a case for something. I'm quite good at asking for things. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I'm also quite good at numbers. So, you know, Brilliant. One of our, I, I could do the cash flows and the budgets and things. I mean, there's, there's so many things in an organization, but there is. there's just so many little things where we, one of us has skills and the other doesn't. And it's, it's the only way that it kind of got off the ground, you know, Yeah. one of us, it wouldn't have happened basically. Amazing. So I know your time is precious. So there's just one, one last thing, um, really, I wondered if I could invite you to talk about, which is how did you get the, the recent project off the ground? If you could just give us a lightning tour from that kind of spark of an idea through to it actually creating nearly half a million in funding for the organisation. Well, so it's, it, we do actually see it as a project, but it's, it's an exhibition with Hauser & Worth. So we've got a partnership with them for three years where we get an exhibition every year and we do a fundraiser. We, it actually, and even I actually met at House from West, I don't know, what, 13 years ago, where uh, Neva was working on front desk and I was a freelance art technician. Mm -hmm. So we met there and that's um, where our relationship started. So, yeah, we went back a few years ago and said, could we have one a one day in your showroom to put on an auction? And we raised £60,000 and we, we were blown away. We were like, wow, that's incredible. And we did that a couple more times during lockdown. We'd have it, we'd sort of come in, install the works. People could come and see it. We'd do an auction. We'd be out by 10 the next morning. And Neil Wenman, who's um, the global creative director and partner there, said to us, oh, I want, you know, I've got some news. We want to offer you a three-year partnership. And we said, well, this is, well, you know, it's kind of, it's funny because what we do is in mental health hospitals, it feels like a lesser version of mm. anything else in the art world. And I think what these things can do is they can sort of validate what you do, which is really important because it validates everything and all the yes. people collaborate on it as something that's real and proper and quality and, you know, clever and all that kind of stuff. And then also it's just a way for us to have thousands of people come and learn about what we do in a way that's not social media or yeah. press. You know, yeah. people come and experience it. We could do talks, we could do workshops, we could do performances, we can, you know, we could we could bring a whole ward in on escorted or unescorted leave to learn about what we do and get involved in some way. And then also we get to ask all the artists who work with us if they support the next thing that we do, which is yeah. a big ask because, you know, we we pay artists, but then also we're asking them to, to contribute to what we do and you know it, i'm always sort of blown away by how generous these artists are 
but it's a way of fundraising for a big portion of what we've got coming up. Mm. So 430,000 pounds is a bit towards a number of different projects and means some of them can actually happen. So, you know, it's a, it, it's a full on month of running, running up to that for, for us and for the whole team and for a lot of people. But when it's done, you just go, you know, that was, that was like our biggest sort of moment of networking and bringing people in and telling people of what we do for the whole year. And, uh, you know, we're grateful for it. And what kind of people did you meet, Tim, that blew you away? Well, I mean, the generosity is, you know, like, I don't know, Jed Quinn, Caroline Walker, Herman Anderson, they all donated brilliant pieces. And mo- most, most of them have worked with us before, but some haven't. But we also meet, you know, the, the great thing is, you know, if you give a tour there and you're standing there after and you, you, someone just comes and says hello and you, you hear a whole story of someone and why they might have been in a ward that we did a project on or mm. their sister's on a ward that, you know, we worked on. And you kind of hear, in a way, like it's really important to hear their experiences. And it's also you know, we had this amazing collaboration with National Opera Studio last year where this um, this group from the a recovery college worked with them and went to everything through Feldenkrais and these kind of breathing exercises to making their own beautiful piece of kind of operatic music. Yeah. And they did a workshop in that space um, with the National Opera Studio and some other people. And by the end, there was a sort of small crowd at the back all cheering you know and you kind of thought wow you know like you can kind of see how i don't know anything's possible really so i think and, and sometimes things don't happen unless you have these opportunities um that you kind of leave open you kind of go we know we've got to raise money but outside of that we don't know what could happen but something good's going to come from it yeah something good is coming from it and something good has already come from it it's amazing what you've achieved I'm curious as to how the work you've done with hospital rooms, you've said how it's impacted on the content and the actual way of making in your own work. But I'm wondering whether it's also introduced you to a whole new bunch of people that might be interested in your work too, that have maybe hopefully supported you as an artist yourself. Have you met some new collectors or people that are interested in working with you personally? Um, not so much. I think it, I think I'd quite like to keep it separate. Mm-hmm. I think it's a separate thing. It might be the other way around, you know, occasionally there's collectors of my work who become supporters of hospital rooms. Lovely. I think over the last sort of two, three years, the, the more there's, there's direct correlation between the more hospital rooms takes over my life, the less exhibitions I do. And I'm fine with it, to be honest, for now. Mm. At some point, I'd, you know, I hope maybe to redress the balance a bit, but I'm not in any rush for that. I also think that hospital rooms is a part of my creative practice. Yeah. So I see that the kind of the, the work and the people who might support me as an artist and hospital rooms is very separate things. But at the same time, my day is, is full of creative, you know, ways of thinking about things and, solving problems and you know it, it's uh, so, someone the other day said something about people wearing two sorry I'll wave them that's <laughs> <laughs> okay there we go how so, amazing saving light bulbs in here um someone someone um who we really respect was talking about 
talking about people who wear two hats and so that never looks that's never a good look and um, I think it's wearing one hat you know it's all it's all one hat you know run, running a creative organization making work in the evening you know making lego it, yes. it all sort of feels like a part of that part of a day and I'm quite glad to have the variety yeah that's music to my ears I wonder if you were to offer your younger self any kind of words of wisdom, Tim, what would they be? Well, I, I guess one would be try not to let rejection get you too down. Mm. It's a lot easier said than done. But, you know, as, as someone who's been on both sides of, you know, applying for things and, um, and you know, doing some quite quite a lot of judging or reviews and things like that, you you realise that it can be different. You know, you might want something if that person had had a croissant that morning and wasn't hungry. You know, or yes. if uh, there hadn't been an oil spill. And you know, it. I, I think you know that people say you can make your own luck, but I think you also have to realise that sometimes it, it's not always fair. And yeah. it, you should, the the main thing is to try not to let it bring you too down. I guess also making mistakes is a really important thing. Try not to make big mistakes, but you know, those those really tough things often can end up being the thing that makes you a better person or, you know, helps you figure something out. And then the really difficult thing is um trying to enjoy moments when you aren't too busy. Mm. It's very hard to do that when you're used to hustling and trying to survive and make sure you're busy and and you know i think you always sort of look back and go wow that that week i had off i should have not worried about everything else or <laughs> yeah. going on that week yeah that's pretty that that's something that i'd love to tell myself even now yeah i'm with you on that <laughs> and finally if you were to offer a gift a nugget to any other creatives that are looking to um do some do something that takes a little bit of courage what bits of advice would you offer them try to enjoy it even if you're not even if you're pedaling away mm -hmm. i guess it's i guess sort of it's cheesy but not giving you know don't give up is mm -hmm. is something that really helps as a mantra but the reality is if you don't enjoy it then you won't do it for a long time and so many organizations or projects don't last more than one to two years you know it's it's a bit like uh, new restaurants you know they, they're so hard to get off the ground but they're so hard to maintain yes don't take joy from it then um then it just won't keep going that's beautiful what a lovely way to end thank you so much tim it's such an inspiring uh time to spend with you but also you're such an inspiring person and everything that you do is such uh, a gift to the world so uh yeah please keep enjoying it and keep going thank you so much for joining us and for your time today thanks so much for having me Please follow and share the podcast. It helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you. Recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews. They might well become part of our show. Thanks for being part of our creative community. Until next time. Mm -hmm.